what we do is we don't wait until we're sleep-deprived and desperate and our child is pushing all our buttons. Uh, we begin proactively to think through what our goals are, what are some ways to respond, how to be an even better parent, perhaps, than our parents were to us, depending on the experience we had. So we're not plunging in anew each time a new situation happens. You know, we have already given a lot of thought, if we're lucky enough to have a co-parent, to have a lot of dialogue, a lot of conversation about what our goals are and how we can solve problems with children rather than unilaterally imposing our demands on them. That is Alfie Cohn. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. I hope this podcast finds you well. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's rated and reviewed the podcast. It really helps people find it, and I read all of them. This week, I've been re-listening to some of my favorite episodes, and I wanted to reshare this gem with Alfie Cohn with you, because it's had such a huge amount of listeners say that it, along with Alfie's book, Unconditional Parenting, has had a really big impact on them and helped them reframe their approach to parenting. If you listened to this episode back in 2021, I would urge you to continue listening to it once more, as if you're anything like me, you might have forgotten a bunch or just might be in a little better place now for some of the ideas to land better. If this is the first time you've heard of Alfie Cohn, though, I cannot recommend enough that you check out his book, Unconditional Parenting. I think it's essential reading for any parent with a growth mindset, which is you, by the way, because you're listening to this podcast and who wants to figure out how to show up as a better parent, which is also you. Anyway, whether it's your first time or your 50th time, I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Alfie Cohn. Alfie Cohn, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to spend some time with you. And I just have to start by just thanking you for writing the book Unconditional Parenting. It's, it's been a revelation for me. Oh, I'm delighted you liked it. Now, can you tell me a bit about your inspiration bef behind writing Unconditional Parenting? Well, I had done research that led to a couple of earlier books, including one called Punished by Rewards, that found that rewards like punishments are not only ineffective, but also counterproductive. That the carrot and stick or bribe and threat approach with kids and for that matter, with students in school and employees in the workplace, always backfires, that it's a way of doing things to people instead of working with them. But eventually, I came to realize that the case against traditional parenting uh, was, was even worse, even more disturbing, because it turns out that rewards such as praise, for example, which is after all, just a verbal doggy biscuit extended to kids to get them to do what we want, ends up communicating the idea that our affection for them, our love, our care, is conditional, that they have to jump through our hoops, that there are strings attached to our love. And what kids need is not just to be loved, but to be loved unconditionally, that is, even when they screw up or fall short. And so unconditional parenting sort of homes in on that particular aspect of raising kids and why most advice to parents turns out to be 
disturbing because it amounts to variations on conditional affection. Yeah. Why Why do you think that is? You know, it, it seems to be most advice is what's convenient for us, not what's what the children really need. Exactly right. That's 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 right. I think most most parenting guides really proceed from the question, what do I want my kids to do? And and give me some tricks for making them do it. Whereas I don't offer simply nicer uh, tricks or techniques. I begin with the question you've indicated, which I think is far more respectful and important, which is, what do my kids need and how can I meet those needs? So that that point of departure, that, that jumping off point, is as important as any answer to the question that's supplied. The trick is not just to be looking for compliance, but to be looking for helping kids to turn out as great people. Yeah, and it really does seem that it's taking that long-term view rather than the short-term view that, that is really what this book hinges on, isn't it? Partly, yeah. Partly it's about the long-term and, and in fact, when I do workshops with parents, as with teachers, for example, I, I begin by asking, what are your long-term goals for your children? How would you like them to turn out years from now? And I've done this all over the world, and I get the same kind of answers everywhere I go. I want my, my kids to be happy, ethical, caring and compassionate, but also independent and self-reliant problem solvers, curious, creative, critical thinkers, that kind of thing. And then what I do for a living, basically, is I say to people, you say you want this, so why are you doing that? Because <laughs> yeah. here's, the, here's the evidence showing that traditional kinds of practices and discipline with kids, it, it's not just that I don't like them, who cares what I think? It's that here's the research showing that traditional approaches, in, including things like rewards and punishments actually make it less likely that your kids will turn out the way you just said you wanted them to. So yes, all of that is about long-term versus short-term, if you can imagine that on a horizontal axis. But I also make a distinction sort of on the vertical axis here, which is the other problem or another problem with traditional approaches is that they stay on the surface. They look at behavior and in fact, my rule of thumb is that the more times you see the word behavior in a book or hear it on a podcast or whatever about parenting, the less valuable that resource probably is. Yeah. Because we need to go beneath the behavior, the action that you can see and measure, and look at the motives and the values and the reasons that underlie and inform children's behavior. I think the scary thing with that as well is the minute we start talking about behavior, it is almost like we're talking about, you know, uh, operant conditioning and, and training a dog. Right. But a lot of people don't don't see that connection. As soon as you have framed it in terms of the behavior that the child engages in, you're going to be tempted to use those manipulative strategies to change, to reinforce or extinguish the children's behavior. That's right. It's not just because that's like the first association that comes to mind when you hear the word behavior as you think about Skinnerian conditioning. It's that the substance 
of the reality of focusing on behavior leads you simply to stay on the surface and try to make your kid come up with the behavior you want. Yeah. And then you end up treating the kid like a pet. Yeah. How can we go deeper then? Well, by thinking about the things that our kids need, by thinking about our long-term goals, by thinking about the child who engages in the behavior rather than the behavior itself. Any of those will bring to mind the lived experience of the child, and then that helps us or prepares us to engage with that experience and to work with kids rather than doing things to them. Yeah, and it's so important, isn't it? Because I think uh, when you when you are given a, a hack or a, a trick to to sort of achieve an outcome, you, you're actually missing seeing the actual child because everyone is individual and everyone has different needs and requirements and desires and so on. And and the minute I suppose you start giving simplified advice, it just skates over that completely and, and misses that, you know, a uh, holus bolus. Well, I would say yes and no. If On the one hand, if people were completely unique, then there would be no point in writing a book or having a podcast about this. <laughs> so there, there are some shared needs that all human beings and all children have. Um, for example, to be able to have some say about their own lives or to be loved unconditionally to take two examples. But on the other hand, I agree with you that there are important differences to the point that when people email me care of my website and ask for advice, I always have to apologetically say, I, I don't know enough about you and your child and your relationship and the specifics of the situation to give you one-size-fits-all advice as if it were a recipe. When you start getting very specific when your kid does this, you should stand here and say the following in this tone of voice. Uh, that's the kind of parenting advice that, you know, people should be very wary of because it manages to be disrespectful to both you and your kid at the same time. Yeah. And what do you actually say to parents in your workshops when they have conditioning that's come from, from the way that they were brought up? And, and I almost find that it's when you're at your lowest moment, you're, you're the most sleep deprived. It's when this sort of thing sneaks in and it's sort of, do you have any you know, suggestions or, I don't know, touchstones almost for, for helping us get back on the path? Well, the book is, is full of them and even that doesn't do justice to all the multiplicity of situations that can arise. So I, I can only speak in very broad strokes, which is what I try to do in the book, too, although I offer examples. Uh, but I, I think you're right. We tend to revert to what was done to us. It's a phenomenon I, I call, how did my mom get in my larynx? <laughs> when you yeah. find yourself saying the same thing and often in the same exact tone that was said to you. And one of the reasons I think that challenging our assumptions about traditional parenting is so unsettling for many people is because at some point or on some level, people kind of figure out that this is asking them to challenge the way they were raised. And that's that can be terrifying because even if we struggled with things that were done to us by our parents, we'd rather not acknowledge that our parents may not have had it all right. 
may not have had our best interest in mind a lot of the time. And therefore, we end up recapitulating, channeling what our parents did to us as if to erase any doubt that our parents did what they did out of love and for our own good. And so I think what we do is we don't wait until we're sleep-deprived and desperate and our child is pushing all our buttons. Uh, we begin proactively to think through what our goals are, what are some ways to respond, how to be an even better parent, perhaps, than our parents were to us, depending on the experience we had. So we're not plunging in anew each time a new situation happens. We have already given a lot of thought, if we're lucky enough to have a co-parent, to have a lot of dialogue, a lot of conversation about what our goals are and how we can solve problems with children rather than unilaterally imposing our demands on them. Yeah. I think for for me, one of the most helpful exercises you mentioned is actually putting ourselves in the shoes of our child in any given moment to really try and see it from their perspective, because it's so, I, I don't know, it's it's so easy to just not see that at all. Yep. That's, that's what psychologists call perspective-taking, imagining the point of view of somebody else. It's slightly different from empathy, with which it is sometimes confused. When we're empathizing, we're actually feeling along with the other person. But perspective-taking means uh, is a cognitive act of imagination. And I think of it as coming in two stages. The simplest version is simply to say, what if somebody said to me or used the tone on me that I just used on my child? How, how would it make me feel? You know, But that's not enough because your child isn't you. And so the next stage is to ask, how does this look from her point of view? You know, Even if you're okay with it, she may not be because you're not the same person. And that more specific version of perspective taking is very powerful. And in fact, research has shown that parents who do this on a regular basis try to stop and figure out, yeah, but how does it seem from the kid's perspective, tend to be better parents by multiple criteria. And incidentally, while we are doing that perspective taking to become better parents, that is also a very useful concept to help teach and model for kids, because if they are raised and get in the, the habit of imagining in their lives. Yeah, but but what is what does this class seem like from the teacher's point of view? Or when I just said that to my friend and she looked a little hurt, you know, how did she take it? That's what helps to create a morally sophisticated good human being. Yeah. And and you also go into how almost to help children become deep thinkers as well. Yes. Yeah, there's an intellectual component to this as well. That's right. Uh, it helps. It's a way that social, moral, and intellectual development all come together. Yeah. One of the things I think that really sort of st stuck in my mind was it's almost like the short-termism, I guess, of a lot of parenting advice really kind of undermines, I think, what a parent's long-term objective would be, that, that they actually want to raise children in a way that they are, the children will want to spend time with them when they're older. And yet, most of the advice doesn't do that. If you think of how it impacts the child and, and they, they grow to resent you as a parent later, 
it's kind of almost this approach, the unconditional parenting, has much better aligned you know, process for achieving both parties' objectives, I think. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. There's, there was an American parenting advisor several decades back called Thomas Gordon, who wrote a book called Parent Effectiveness Training, PET. And he had a line in, in, in his book that really grabbed me, even though I read it before I was a parent myself. He said, the more you use power on children to get them to do what you want, the less influence you'll probably have on their lives. And I knew then that if I had kids someday, which I did, I would kind of like to have some influence on their lives and have them want to hang out with me when they had a choice in the matter. Yeah. And you don't do that by just giving kids things, just buying them presents or ice cream or something like that, or telling them they can do whatever they want, even when it doesn't make sense. The way you become good company for your kid, the way you become the kind of person they will look to, to ask advice of, and just want to socialize with, is by treating them respectfully, by doing perspective taking, by doing a lot more asking than telling. Yeah, and all of that yeah, I think I think that's right. That's a very important criterion to keep in mind in thinking about how we act with kids. Is are, are, are you not only setting up your child to be a good human being, happy, ethical, compassionate, all the rest of that stuff, but also setting up the possibility of a strong, respectful, mutual relationship when your child and you are older. Yeah, and um, what advice or what would you actually? Say to yourself, if you could wind back the clock and go to that that time when you you were you know just planning a family. Well, I don't think there's any one in my own case. I don't think there's any one specific thing. I, I created a book after I had started this process to try to put my thoughts in order for myself and hopefully to be of some benefit to 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 other people. Well, I can absolutely attest that it's been a huge benefit to at least one other person and I'm sure many, many millions more. So I just want to say thank you. It's, it is it is absolutely um, the the best book I've read on parenting. So um, I, and I, I really think that I love your idea that, you know, you, you reserve, you, you, you love, you're intrigued by, you know, how research and solid logic tend to push in one direction um, compared to common practice or assumptions pushing in the other direction. And I think there isn't, oh, there aren't many topics um, that that's not, um, you know, as much the case as with parenting. So I, I think what, what do you see for the future of parenting? What's the opportunity with taking an unconditional parenting approach on a broader scale for, for societies, do you think? Uh, I think that if we move in this direction, we're likely to have people who are less anxious, who are not only who not only feel better about themselves, but are less trapped in themselves, or more proficient at and inclined to reach out to others and respond this way, and become better parents when it's their turn, if it's their turn. Um, yeah, obviously, this is this makes a huge. A deal. I mean, it's there's no way to definitively create cause, uh, a cause-effect connection with many things. It's not absolute. There are many features of 
one's life that lead to the kind of outcomes, kind of characteristics, personality, and lives that we end up leading. How we're parented is one part. You know, another part is is inborn temperament. Another part is the social and economic systems in which we're placed. Another part is the influence of peers as kids get older. All of this plays a role. Um, for better or worse, parenting is not the absolute and sole predictor of outcome, but it makes a hell of a difference, and we might as well do what we can with the influence we have in the direction of working with kids instead of just demanding compliance. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose another big factor of that is the, the schooling system in general. And and I know you've written uh, at length on the actual education process yes. as well. That's right. I, I, I've written a number of books about education, which is another area where good logic and evidence point in one direction, and yet common practice pushes in another. You know, I've challenged standardized exams, homework, grades, a fact-oriented curriculum, and again, punishments and rewards. But in a school setting, there are terrible programs out there that treat students like pets to get them all to obey at the school-wide level or classroom management level. And um, and the other connection between home and school, the other observation that I've, I've made in my work based on a lot of research, is that kids learn how to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions. Yeah. So the best teachers, like, like the best parents, are, are empowering kids to have more say about their own lives rather than just demanding obedience. Yeah, and that was a key tenet of well, as well, wasn't it? You know, this involving children in the decision-making as early as possible. Yes, that's right. And in a way that's developmentally appropriate, of course. A three-year-old does not have the capability of making the same kinds of decisions, often open-ended questions, the way a 13-year-old would. But in general, most parents don't go far enough in, in, in having kids participate, and as I say, doing more asking than, than telling. A lot of times when we deprive kids of the ability to make to make decisions and just tell them what to do. It's it's usually not because the kid's incapable of expressing a preference. It's because it's more convenient for us to have the kid do whatever we want. Yeah. And I spent I think the the more we ratchet up the stakes with, you know, time pressures in in the way we live our lives these days, that can only get worse unless we're mindful enough to actually pull ourselves out of the rut that we're in and, and think, well, have I actually given my child the, the autonomy or the training to enable them to become more autonomous? Or am I just steering them the whole way to you know, university like can be the case? Yes, that's, that, that's right. And if, I'm, and if I'm steering, doing too much controlling, uh, what's the likely long-term effect of that and who benefits from it? You know, those are the questions to ask, yeah. which takes us back to where we started, maybe a good place to wind up, which is your distinction between thinking in the long term versus the short term. Absolutely. Well, I uh, want to thank you again for your time, but also all the hard work and effort you put into creating these fantastic books. And I'd like to say to the listeners, just get amongst the books because, um, you know, 
it's just great to actually take a a, a a different lens to what is what or what has been culturally acceptable and our own conditioning to actually be a bit more deliberate in how we actually want to carry ourselves and and show up as parents. Nicely said. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that chat with Alfie, if you could click some stars to rate it on your podcast player, or if you're keen to procrastinate getting something else done, you could always head over to the the rate and review section on your podcast player and write a little note describing what you think of the show. I read every single review, and it really helps other people discover the podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Alfie and read some of his books, head on over to Alfie Cohn, that's A-L-F-I-E, K-O-H-N dot com. Seriously, your future children will thank you. I'll also put notes on the website, thedadmindset.com, which is also where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter that alerts you when a fresh Dad Mindset episode is ready for your listening pleasure. Anyway, that's all from me. I hope you have a great week and enjoy your caffeinated beverage. Mm-hmm.